From the National Society of Genetic Counselors, this is the NSGC podcast series. Exploring stories of leading voices and best practices in genetic counseling. Now to your host. Welcome to the 2021 season of the SGC podcast series. I'm your host, Naomi Wagner. Before we get started today, I wanted to take a moment to introduce you all to this season's new subcommittee members. This year, seasoned podcast subcommittee member Rowan Awad and I are joined by two new voices, Mary Pat Bland and Ryan Kuehl. First, I'm going to kick off our episode today with Dr. Brian Schertz, who is a molecular pathologist at the University of Washington. He does clinical testing for many inherited diseases, and his research focuses on improving resources for hereditary cancer prevention. Brian Schertz and I will be discussing his article in the Journal of Genetic Counseling, titled Exploring Relatives' Perceptions of Participation, Ethics, and Communication in a Patient-Driven Study for Hereditary Cancer Variant Reclassification. Then, for the second half of our episode, Ryan will be speaking with Courtney Kokonakis, Courtney is a clinical cancer genetic counselor at Carmanos Cancer Institute in Detroit, Michigan. She graduated from Wayne State's genetic counseling program in 2016. Courtney and Ryan will be discussing her experiences and perspectives on family variant testing in clinical cancer genetic settings. Now, I'm excited to welcome our first guest. We're happy to have you here today, Ryan. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So to start, could you provide us with background on the Find My Variant study and an overview of some of the quantitative findings which were previously published in Genetics in Medicine? Sure. So this is a study that was initially funded by the Damon Runyon Cancer Research Foundation. And then additionally, we we got some funding from the NIH and R21 to interview people. And so most of what we'll be talking about, I think, in this podcast are, are the interviews. But our goal was really to see how well family testing could do at variant classification if we really kind of opened the doors wide. If we said anybody who wants to do family studies to classify their variant of uncertain significance is eligible no matter what gene they have and no matter what their family structure is like. And um, and we'll, we'll genotype as many family members as that person is willing to contact. And so our attitude was very much of a patient-driven attitude where the patient comes to us and says, I want to class my my variant. And we say, well, we'll help you enroll as many family members you want that that, that have a risk of having your variant, and we'll use that information to help classify the variant. And we found that using that patient-oriented and patient-driven strategy, we we saw 6.7 relatives were invited per family, and two-thirds of those invited relatives ended up sending their samples in for genotypes. And, and because of that, we were able to classify 61% of the variance of uncertain significance within a year. Our median time to classification was 298 days. And this is really dramatically better than people had reported family studies in the past. And there's several reasons for that. I think the main one is, is just this family or patient-centric focus and also just the willingness to go all out to help patients reach out to their families and classify their variants. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you think it makes a big difference when the family members are invited by one of their relatives as opposed to a laboratory or a clinician to participate in variant reclassification studies. That's what the data showed from our initial study, and that's actually one of the reasons why we wanted to talk to the relatives is to figure out what the difference was for them. 
and and what their opinions were of being invited by their their family members. So, so that's one one of the things that motivated the study that we're talking about today is is trying to answer the question, why did this go down differently than prior studies that had been more driven by uh, by researchers and by commercial laboratories who were reaching out to relatives directly. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so the Journal of Genetic Counseling paper we're discussing today was a qualitative study focused on the experiences of relatives. What did you learn about the primary motivations for family members to participate in the variant reclassification study? So that's a great question. And, and, and before I go on, I have to say that a lot of this work was done by Ginger Tsai, who's, who's the leader author on their paper and, and did the primary analysis. She did almost all the interviews. And with qualitative research, there's so many things to learn and so many ways to go. And our analysis showed some of the primary reasons were really to help family. Most people, like some people, we asked them, why did you participate in this study? And then their answer was something along the lines of, well, my niece asked me to. Of course, I'm going to help my niece. And that's very different than a, a, you know, I got a letter from a laboratory asking me to do this. Another major factor was people would want to contribute to science. They respect science and think the science is important. And being asked to be part of a scientific endeavor, they thought that that would be something that would be important to grow general knowledge. Some people wanted to participate because of self-interest. You know, this is something happening in their family and they want to figure out what it is. And then one that was not really a motivator, but really important is that we tried to make it as convenient as possible for people to, to, to participate. And so we would you know, send them saliva collection kits. We tried to make the consenting process as easy, as convenient as possible. So we just really tried to lower the barriers. And so the fact that there were no barriers was something that was relatively minimal effort, but was important to people as well. Mm-hmm. And was there a website or an online place that the relatives could go to learn more or to sign up? There was. So we had this Find My Variant website. The primary purpose of the Find My Variant website, which is still live, was to teach the proband participants to uh, how to reach out to their family members mm-hmm. and how to communicate with their family members well. And we, we published a, a separate paper about the perspectives of the, of the probands and why they wanted to participate. That was the primary purpose, but we made it publicly available and so that the relatives could go there and find out more about it as well. From what we gathered, we didn't quantify exactly who, who said they went to the, we didn't ask them directly, did you go to the website or not? But it didn't seem like very many re- of the relatives went to the website at all. It seemed like the primary source of information about the study for the relatives was the proband. And, mm-hmm. and the, the second source was they would ask us questions directly, but we didn't get a whole lot of questions, direct questions from the relatives either. It was really the probands themselves. It was a, pa- a patient-driven, patient-motivated study that the, the patients were talking to the relatives and we're giving the relatives almost all of the information about the study themselves and about their variants of uncertain significance themselves. Hmm. And did it seem like relatives obtained accurate information from their family members from the proband about variants of uncertain significance? Were there concerns about medical literacy or the relatives understanding what they were participating in? That was a, a concern of ours at first, which is one of the reasons why we wanted to interview the relatives. And when we interviewed the relatives, it seemed like, I would say it was not a major concern for us. The relatives understood the study well enough that they didn't get too worried in general and that they understood the study well enough that many of them were participating. And so it seemed like the patients were able to communicate with their relatives appropriately. We, we did do quite a bit of effort um, in our communication with the patients to, to coach them. 
Um, and, and the whole website was there to, to coach people about how to talk to their relatives about hereditary cancer risk, about variants of uncertain significance. And so um, I'm not sure how much of that is just because of the, the information they got from the genetic analysis beforehand, how much of that's what they got from the website and from the study materials, and how much of it is just you know common sense that they were able to communicate that that with, with the relatives. But it seemed like they were able to communicate pretty well. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it sounded like given one of the motivations was relatives understanding for themselves, relatives understood, at least in the hereditary cancer space, that they might be learning information about their own health through this process as well. That's correct. Yeah. And we did send the relatives a consent form and the consent form explained that as well. And so I guess it wasn't, it was the the proband, patient probands who were inviting and communicating initially about that. But before we did genetic testing on anyone, they would, they would have had the opportunity to read through a, a consent form that described that. Mm-hmm. So through the family member study, did you identify any particular concerns or hesitations that family member raised with regards to participating in the variant program? Yeah, we tried hard to interview relatives who were invited but did not participate, and that's a challenging group to get to. Mm-hmm. But we were able to interview about five people who didn't end up participating and we also were able to ask the people who did participate if they had any concerns as well. The, the main reason why people decided not to participate is that it just wasn't a priority for them. It just wasn't something that, that, that they thought was important. It, it wasn't worth the, the effort to do it. And then the other main reason why people didn't participate was concerns about data security. I think there's a general concern about genetic information and about giving away people genetic information. And um, this is the, the Gattaca effect, I guess, that's, mm-hmm. that, that pe- people are concerned about what that information means and that it's an, un- it's an unknown about information. They don't know how people could use it. And so people are, are concerned about giving up their private information, and also especially about, about their DNA information. And we tried to do everything we could to alleviate those concerns. We only genotyped the variant of interest and so we don't have broad genetic information on any of the, the participants in the study. We just know about that specific variant of uncertain significance. And then we you know, kept our data secure using all kinds of the standard University of Washington protocols for keeping um, data security. So I think that's one of the issues. And, and, and frankly, one of the reasons why I think it was an issue is because our University of Washington IRB has very specific language they want people to use in terms of genetic information. And so we say the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, Gina protects this information, but the University of Washington wanted us to say, but we can't promise that people won't use your genetic information to discriminate against you for employment or health insurance, um, even though it's protected under the law, and even though I don't know how very uncertain significant information could even be used for that. And so, so a lot of people brought up data security, but when they did bring up data security, oftentimes it was using the exact language that our IRB asked us to put in our consent forms. Um, so that, that's something that I'm, I'm not sure if it was an artifact of the way the study was done or, or, or how much of that was a real data, uh, data security concern. Regarding some of the interviews, were there anything else surprising or unexpected that came up from the family member responses? I think that the overall picture was the most surprising thing to me of how many relatives chose to participate and how eager they were to how eager those who participated were to help family and to be part of this. 
based on the prior studies that had been done on family studies, you know, so some, some of the family studies that had been done, only half a relative per participant ended up joining. And so it didn't help very much for variant classification. And so we were expecting a lot of people not to participate. And I was really surprised at how many people participated and how eager they were to help with variant classification. Um, so that was, that, that was not expected to, to see that positive response from so many people. And sounds like there was not a limit to the number of family members that could be invited to participate. Is that correct? That's correct. So we wanted to make it open to anybody who might have that variant. And our initial data analysis showed that the more people you genotype that, that have the variant, the better. And, and that, that's true that if you can find more people who have the variant, the better. And in getting distant relatives like first cousins and second cousins even can be even more valuable if you find someone who has the variant. One of the most compelling cases to me was one where a woman had a variant of uncertain significance in, I believe it was BRCA2, and her mother had ovarian cancer and had the same variant of uncertain significance. And so we were thinking this looked like it might be pathogenic just from knowing that her mother had it and had ovarian cancer as well. And then as she traced this variant through her mother's side of the family, she found several cousins who ended up having the variant. And there was no other breast or ovarian cancer in the, in the people who had the variant in that family. And when we did the co-segregation analysis, it ended up being pretty compelling evidence that this variant was not associated with a cancer and that her mother had ovarian cancer by chance. It was not a particularly early onset ovarian cancer, and the proband didn't have cancer herself. And so, mm-hmm. so the picture was very clear that this was a benign variant, and we would not have been able to figure that out if it weren't for genotyping quite a few second cousins, or first and second cousins, before we found somebody who had that variant. We, there were other families where we genotyped six or seven first and second cousins and never found any of them that had the variant just by chance. Um, and so it wasn't always useful to, to genotype a lot of relatives, but we knew that in some cases it would be. And so it, it, in the end, I think it, it contributed substantially to variant classification to be able to say, you know, if a relative is likely to have this, then we're going to genotype them. In retrospect, we, we've changed our, after doing this analysis, we've changed the way we do things actually, and that now we as part of the process, occasionally we would genotype children, and we've realized now that genotyping people who are under 30, at least for hereditary cancer risk, isn't really mm-hmm. that helpful because you don't expect somebody to have disease whether they have the variant or not. So if somebody's unaffected under 30, now we, we have more sophisticated ways to see how much information someone's likely to give. And so we're a little, a little more discriminating now, but still at the University of Washington, when we see a variant of uncertain significance, we uh, open up family studies to everyone who has a variant of uncertain significance. Uh, we, we want to get as many relatives as we can who will help classify that variant and who will provide information for that variant. Yeah, and it seems like also you're quite open to all variants of uncertain significance. I know some companies or labs only offer no-cost family variant testing for variants of uncertain significance that are likely to be reclassified as likely pathogenic or pathogenic. But you just described a case where reclassifying to benign was very helpful. Do you think reclassifying variants that might be trending towards likely benign is just as useful as reclassifying those to likely pathogenic? 
Absolutely. This is a major take home that we found is that family studies work really well at classifying variants that are leaning towards likely benign. You find four or five relatives who have the variant and don't have the disease, and that can push something over towards the likely benign that is potentially on the fence, especially if it's already trending towards likely benign, and especially if it's a relatively high penetrance, relatively high penetrance gene. My favorite ones, at least the easiest ones to reclassify are ones where, you know, you have somebody who has an APC variant, and, you know, it's not clear whether that person's going to develop poly, but maybe they're young, you genotype their parents or their grandparents, and you, you find an 80-year-old who's had a colonoscopy that's totally clean and has the APC variant, and, and you're done, because there's no way that an 80-year-old with a pathogenic APC variant is going to have a clean colonoscopy. Um, so, so, so I think that's just one example where you know, genotyping one or two people can really provide a definitive classification. And 80% of variants of uncertain significance end up being classified as benign. And, and that's what we found in our study. And, that's, and, and it's really unfortunate to, to leave people who have variants of uncertain significance where they don't have a family history and, and say, well, you know, those variants will classify themselves because they, because they won't. And that's where the potential harm is, is, is patients who have variants of uncertain significance that are benign and who treat them as pathogenic because they misunderstand what variance of significance means. And so I think it's a huge benefit to reclassify variance of uncertain significance as likely benign. And the evidence that we have is that family studies work really well to be able to do that. So I don't, I don't see any reason to limit family studies to variants that are suspected to be pathogenic or to families that look like there's a strong family history. Yeah, one other thing I wanted to note is that in this study, 96% of the participants were of European descent. And studies have shown that Black or African-American individuals or others of non-European or mixed ancestry often have even more variants of uncertain significance on panel testing. And I know there's you know many opportunities for confusion or concern regarding variants of uncertain significance. Do you have any thoughts on how we can make this VUS clarification testing more accessible to families of non-European descent? Yeah, that is a phenomenal question. And that, that really is a major limitation of this study. And I'm glad you brought that up. The way that we performed this study was we had people come to us, really if people learned about it from their genetic counselors or, or from word of mouth, and they would have to come to us to, to classify the variance of uncertain significance. And so this was a, a study that was, we didn't have a very sophisticated recruitment strategy to reach out to minorities. And then in retrospect, I wish we would have done more for that. For the people with non-European ancestry who did join the study, we didn't see any significant differences. It was, a very, it was a small subset. And so we can't say whether that's by chance or not. But, but it seems like family studies would work equally across the board, regardless of ancestry. And so I think that family studies should be extended towards everyone regardless of where they're coming from. But I do think that one of the main things we have to do is just start from who we are, who we're inviting to get genetic testing. The pool of people we had to draw from were people who had positive results from hereditary cancer risk testing. And the, the data from the kind of the community clinics is that that sample is overrepresented for people of European ancestry. So we were already kind of, we already had had a, a, the cards stacked against us in terms of diverse mm -hmm. outreach because the people who are getting tested are people of European ancestry. So I think the first thing to do is to make sure we have 
good equity and good outreach in our provision of genetic services in this country overall. And then after that, I think that we should have family studies available for everyone who has a variant of uncertain significance, regardless of what their ancestry is, because the family family studies are very effective to cl- help classify variants of uncertain significance. And if there's more variants of uncertain significance in people who have Black or African American ancestry or Hispanic ancestry or whatever their ancestry is, if there's if there's more variants of uncertain significance there, that that's where we should be working harder to have outreach to do things like family studies that are able to classify the variants more quickly and effectively than just waiting for more data. Absolutely. And I think a good argument too for opening up the family studies to even extended relatives, because not everybody has a traditional family structure and is able to get their mother and father to participate, but potentially opening it up to cousins or extended relatives could also increase those families, which could benefit as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Some of the main reasons why people don't have their parents available because their parents are deceased. You know, this is hereditary cancer risk. It's not unusual mm-hmm. to see someone whose parent died at an early age of cancer. So all the more reason to what I call it is breaking through the barrier of death. You know, somebody died and oftentimes that's a barrier to doing family studies, but it doesn't have to be. You, you can easily go out further. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good point. So do you have any final comments or suggestions for genetic counselors, physicians, or labs as we consider approaches to family testing of variants of uncertain significance? Yeah, you know, after I did this, I reached out to a lot of different laboratories. And and I think that that a lot of of laboratories are thinking more about family studies. Most laboratories have family studies programs. And I know that the criteria for getting into them vary from, from laboratory to laboratory. But for the genetic counselors and, and, and physicians there, I recommend for every patient that has a variant of uncertain significance, you know, sending an email to the lab saying, you know, this is a family that I think would benefit from family studies. Does this person qualify? And if they don't qualify, then, you know, what else can you tell me about this variant of uncertain significance? Because oftentimes most laboratories are providing this really as a service to the genetic counselors. They're providing it so that they can keep the genetic counselor's business. And because they want to provide good service to their patients, but really the stronger motivation is to provide good service for the genetic counselors. Most laboratories I know see the genetic counselors as, and then the people who are ordering the testing as their primary clients. And so if a provider asks the lab, the lab is much more likely to follow through than if the patient asks the lab directly. And also, most patients don't know that they can ask the lab about family studies. So I just recommend if you have a family with a variant of uncertain significance, follow up and send an email to the lab saying, you know, we see this variant of uncertain significance, are family studies available for it? And I think that the more, the more demand there is from genetic counselors, the more likely that the laboratories are going to see this as a real demand and as something that they need to have and they need to do well and they need to provide more broadly to their patients. Because of this study, the University of Washington Department of Laboratory Medicine said, we're going to do family studies for every variant of uncertain significance if the patient wants to. We're not going to force it on on a patient, but if the patient wants to to reach out to family members, we'll offer it to everyone for every variant of uncertain significance. And I think that if if that's what our field demands, if that's what the medical geneticists and genetic counselor demand, then the labs are going to do it. It's as simple as that. They're, they're going to they're gonna want to, to be the best lab for the providers who are ordering testing from them. And if we as a community say this is what we want, 
then that's what we're going to get. Yeah, I think some excellent points to consider. And I know probably most or all of our listeners deal with variants of uncertain significance on a daily basis. So I appreciate you sharing about this article and sharing your thoughts. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I, I really appreciate the interest in this and I really appreciate everything that the NSGC does. This is a, a great podcast. To read Dr. Brian Schertz and his team's full article in the Journal of Genetic Counseling, visit nsgc.org forward slash Journal of Genetic Counseling. And now over to Ryan and Courtney. Well, Courtney, thank you for joining us today. We wanted to touch base with a clinical genetic counselor like yourself who works in this space to talk a little bit more to your experience with patients that might encounter variant of uncertain significance and BUS reclassification by engaging their family members in that sort of a discussion. So to start off, how often would you say that you encounter VUSs on testing that you order for your patients in the clinic? Thank you for having me, Ryan. I think this is a important topic to discuss. And in terms of VUSs, I think probably all of the clinical genetic counselors that are listening can appreciate that it is very common to get a variant of uncertain significance on these types of reports. So it's one of those things where I almost expect to get at least one VUS when I order testing. I think it somewhat depends on the panel that you order. So I typically tend to order larger multi-cancer panels as opposed to those organ-specific panels in my clinic. We made that decision a few years ago after we had enough of those kind of surprise results accumulating, and it just made us wonder, you know, could we be missing other actionable mutations in families? So, you know, I think that the more genes you test, the, the higher the likelihood is that you'll get some uncertain variants, some VUSs. So I usually let my patients know that about one in four tests come back with a at least one VUS, and that's based off of data that I was given from the labs I work with. Mm -hmm. How do those conversations about VUSs typically go? Do you typically present the option, you know, in your pretest counseling? And and how would you expand on getting a a result like a VUS and discussing that in your post-test counseling, your results sessions? Yeah. So in my experience, I think most patients seem to to get it. They don't usually express much concern or anxiety about those types of results. I refer to them as inconclusive results to patients, and I do spend a fair amount of time during our pretest counseling session explaining the possibility of getting a VUS and you know how they're usually nothing to worry about, and that a majority do end up getting reclassified to likely benign or negative. So when I I do call my patients with a VUS result, most of them seem to remember having that conversation. And in terms of presenting the family variant testing options. You know, I, I work with a couple of different laboratories, and uh, what's really nice, some of the labs uh, will tell you right on the report under the variant information, you know, whether or not that particular BUS is eligible for family studies. So then you kind of know right away if this is something you can bring up with your patient during the results disclosure. You know, I'll say it's not super common that I do get a BUS that's eligible for family variant testing. You know, it's my understanding that you know, with segregation analysis. It's just one line of evidence that it might not be weighed super heavily for a lot of the, of the VUSs. And, you know, that can depend on a lot of different factors. But when I do present that option to patients, I basically let them know that there could be some additional testing and other family members that 
could help shed light on you know, whether this is just a, a benign variant or something that could truly be increasing the risk for cancer in the family and you know, kind of gauge their interest from there and then give them more information about the process if that is something they're interested in pursuing. Yeah, it sounds like setting those expectations is something that we do in a lot of our pre-test counseling, whether that be for a positive type of result or a negative type of result. Do you feel that, you know, setting that stage and setting that agenda with talking about VUSs and even maybe talking about reclassification in your pre-test counseling can help on the back end when you're disclosing those results to patients? Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely think so. And it is certainly something that um, I, I might bring up in pre-test counseling, just letting them know, you know, with these VUS results, usually they're nothing to worry about. We do sometimes have those really suspicious results that other family members might benefit from doing additional testing that could help kind of clarify things. But no, certainly, I think it's really important to help set up expectations and to talk about how testing additional family members can be helpful. I think just the nature of genetics and the conversations we have with our patients up front, we're really spending a lot of time discussing genetic testing implications and cancer risks for other family members and, you know, how those results could impact them. So I feel like in those situations where you're presenting that possibility of family studies for, you know, potentially variant reclassification, it it feels pretty natural. Most of the patients seem to understand, you know, if we're suspicious that, this is something potentially causing cancer in the family, that tracing an uncertain variant with other family members who might also be affected with cancer could be helpful in getting that variant upgraded to likely pathogenic. And even on the flip side, if the lab is close to reclassifying that variant to likely benign, how testing maybe older, unaffected individuals in the family could be helpful in that situation. But yeah, I definitely think that setting up those expectations is appropriate. We need to let them know that it's a process and that if they do decide to participate in these types of studies, that it doesn't always result in a reclassification and that it can sometimes take a long time to get there. I completely agree. Do you think that this is something, variant reclassification that is, is that something that you think patients are actively thinking about on their own? Or is that something that you tend to bring up in those sessions as a possibility more on the pre-test counseling side? Yeah, so you know, I think that it, it's probably not something that patients are actively thinking about. I think that they, with all of this information, it, it's kind of a lot to take in. And so you know, we're going through so much information and talking about potential uh, screening recommendations for the patient and cancer risks for other family members. And so I think once we kind of get to the, the discussion about inconclusive results and uh, uncertain variants, you know, that's something that, you know, I uh, talk about what those are and what to expect if we get one. And then it's more so on the back end, once I get results where I might do a deeper dive into the different possibilities and different strategies that we might use to help reclassify those, mostly because I don't want to overwhelm the patient up front with so much information. So I have found that that's helpful to kind of break it up. And if that's something we need to address in the results discussion, then we can do so. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, Have you ever had a case where family members have participated in reclassification testing and you've been able to reclassify a variant for a patient? Yeah. So actually, this is pretty timely because our clinic did recently have a, a, what I would call a reclassification success from family studies. So 
one of those situations where everything just really lined up perfectly to make this happen. It was a case where the patient was being seen in our clinic for a personal and family history of polyps. So he himself, he had a significant history of polyps. When we did his genetic testing, it came back the VUS and the APC gene. So obviously really suspicious since that gene is associated with FAP and it happened to be eligible for family studies, you know, mostly because this was actually the first time this particular variant had been identified at this lab. So they were really only missing that segregation piece. So we already knew there were other relatives in the family with significant polyposis. So some individuals actually had already you know, undergone surgeries and whatnot. So not only was this VUS suspicious for the patient's presentation and phenotype, but you know, clearly seemed to fit the family history too. So this also happened to just be a really motivated patient. And when we told him that you know, this is one of these VUSs that, you know, we're actually kind of suspicious for and that could actually be something and getting his other family members with polyposis to undergo testing might just be that missing piece that could help get it reclassified. He was really all about it. And uh, he reached out to the other eligible relatives to get the ball rolling. And I do think that was really key. Those other family members hearing it from the patient and not some stranger, not me kind of cold calling people. This patient was really motivated to get the information for his family, but um, also felt like it was nice to potentially contribute overall to scientific knowledge. It, it was a lot to coordinate. You know, as a genetic counselor, you need to contact these other family members after they express interest. And in, in this case, the lab actually wanted some colonoscopy and pathology reports to confirm the polyposis in those relatives. So I uh, requested medical records, got saliva kits mailed. Then it was just kind of playing the waiting game at that point. So it actually took a little over a year for the lab to eventually reclassify it, but they did end up reclassifying it to likely pathogenic. So really worth it for our patient. You know, nothing too major changed for him since you know, he was already being followed pretty closely, but did give some other screening options to consider. And now we have something tangible to offer other people, especially the younger generation in the family that they now can pursue testing and have a better sense for when to start colonoscopies and other screening. And of course, it will, it will hopefully be helpful to other families out there who might be found to have that variant too. Yeah, certainly. When you disclosed that the variant was reclassified, how did the, the patient and the, the family members that were involved in the reclassification react to that news? They weren't surprised, but um, I guess... It was almost as if, you know, so much time had passed. It was like, oh, okay, yeah, I, you know, I, I kind of forgot about this. But it was one of those things we talked at length about, this is very suspicious. This really fits your personal and family history. The lab is already kind of leaning towards reclassifying it this way. But no, they were very happy to get that reclassification. Like I said, it really just helped with offering testing for other people in the family. And I know a lot of other people in the family then were able to get testing done on themselves and, and get some more definitive answers. So they were certainly happy that it ended up working out for them. So it sounds like the time commitment to submit all of that documentation and get the other family members involved was certainly a large part of this process and getting that, that variant reclassified. What would you say are some, some additional hurdles that clinical genetic counselors might face when trying to involve family members in family variant testing to, to reclassify? 
that's a really good question. So I honestly do feel like there are uh, quite a few hurdles for these types of studies. One of the things that I always consider is different laboratories handle these sorts of studies differently. So you know, number one, having a good sense for the laboratories you're working with and how they handle these types of studies. But yeah, the logistics, of course, it starts with just kind of having that conversation with the patient. And in my experience, many people are open at that point to sharing the information with relatives, you know, asking them if they're interested in participating. But I do find this might be where things might fall off a little bit or where families are lost to follow up. There's other logistical hurdles that come into play. You know, often the family members are from outside of your institution. They might live out of state. So then you need to think about medical release forms, requesting medical records, all that fun stuff. And then maybe you've done all of that work and gotten all that paperwork submitted. And then maybe it just so happens that that family member doesn't return the saliva kit. And then all of a sudden you can't get a hold of them. So I just think there are a lot of areas where it can potentially fall off. But I think the reality is a lot of the VUSs, at least in my experience, usually just aren't eligible for these types of studies with the clinical laboratories. There, there tend to be a lot of exclusion criteria. Typically, it needs to be a high penetrant gene. A lot of the moderate risk genes that we test for aren't eligible. And then not all of the relatives are going to be informative. Usually, the lab will let you know which ones are. Maybe that's happens to be a relative that has unfortunately passed away or maybe just isn't interested in participating. So sometimes that can uh, play a role too, that there just might not be those family members to test. So it does take a lot of time and commitment. And sometimes even if you've done everything right, that VUS still just might not get reclassified. So I think that can sometimes be a little disheartening um, in, in the clinic. But I do think that it's important to set up those expectations appropriately with the patient. So that they're on the same page as you. So, you know, let them know from the beginning that, well, we could go through all this and we might not get that reclassification. You know, there might be a long turnaround time. It might be months. It might be a couple of years. It's definitely a process. But when you do finally get one of those reclassifications and it's because of all of your work coordinating and your patient's commitment and their family members' involvement, you know, I think that really makes it all worth it. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree that some of those hurdles are based in the system that we have available to us to, to do some variant reclassification. So, and, and also sort of on this time component of, of genetic counselors being involved in this process, can you speak a little bit to what your strategies are in terms of managing follow-up for these familial VUS and reclassification cases? If you were to have multiple at one time, how might you handle approaching those? Yeah, definitely. So one of the approaches I take, I keep a pretty meticulous spreadsheets on all of my patients and their results. And I have a whole section dedicated to VUSs, whether or not there have been any reclassifications, was that VUS eligible uh, for family studies at the time of the report? I'll also to know, you know, if it was a particularly suspicious VUS. And I, I try to always, as things come, I try to follow up on everything immediately, but I can always fall back on my notes. And I, one thing that's been helpful, I try to do like a year-end check. So I can go back to my database and review and follow up on out, any outstanding issues related to VUSs. So that really works for me. When I get a reclassification from the laboratory, it's almost always a downgrade to likely benign. So our clinic also has protocols set up just regarding contacting the patient and, and sending them their amended reports. Another thing that I think is helpful, 
I have reached out to the laboratories that I work with at different times and requested lists of my patients who have had a reclassification. That way I can cross-reference, make sure I'm not missing anything. So that might be an option for other people out there as well. And then otherwise, if it is a particularly suspicious VUS and it isn't eligible for family studies, I start thinking about, is there anything else that could be helpful in interpreting this result for the patient? So maybe it's a gene that would benefit from RNA analysis, or maybe this is a patient that had some tumor profiling performed, or one of their relatives has had tumor testing. So those are all other tools that can sometimes be helpful in interpreting you know, these types of results and can maybe shed some light on what might be going on. Do you have any advice for counselors that are trying to navigate this space of a variant reclassification by performing familial testing? Yeah, so I think something that was really helpful for me, especially in the beginning uh, of my career, was uh, reaching out to the genetic counselors and the different reps at the laboratories I used to, you know, just learn more about their reclassification process, their variant reclassification rates. Um, those are sometimes questions that the patient might have, so it's good information for you to know. And then just how do family studies fit into that for these different laboratories? So if there's a VUS that I'm really suspicious of, I almost always call the laboratory to get more information. Often the genetic counselors they have can give you a little bit more information than what might just be provided on the report. They can usually tell you, you know, how close or far away that variant is to being reclassified. You know, and they can just give you better insight into whether or not family studies would make a difference. And sometimes they can let you know if you should even proceed with an application. They might, they might have some insight there. So you know, those are things that have worked really well for me. Another piece of advice, if a patient isn't initially interested in family studies, and if they do have a, a VUS that is eligible, maybe think about including the blurb in, in the consult letter about eligibility and who to contact if they change their mind about family studies. Maybe this is a patient who is interested, but maybe they just have a lot going on with their treatment. Maybe it's just not the right time and place for them. So those are patients that I like to include things in their letter and then maybe reach out to them a year later and see if they've given it any more thought or if they've changed their mind. In that same vein, offering to write letters to family members on their behalf that might be eligible if that's something that the patient is open to. Yeah, it sounds like meeting them where they are at that point in time. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And then lastly, I think that another thing that you as a clinical genetic counselor could do is try to connect patients with other research studies. So like Dr. Schertz group and their Find My Variant program, I think we're always hearing about really cool new research opportunities when it comes to uncertain variants. So again, you as the genetic counselor could always relay this information to your patients during their results disclosure, include something in their letter. So then the patient knows where to go if it is something they're interested in learning more about or participating in. Great. Thank you. Those are wonderful insights and action items. I appreciate it. Well, Courtney, I think that's all the time that we have for this segment today. Thank you so much for your insight. We really appreciate it. Yep. Thank you so much for having me. That concludes this month's episode of the NSGC podcast series. We can't wait to spend another year in your podcast feeds, exploring leading voices and best practices in genetic counseling. This recording is produced by the National Society of Genetic Counselors. I'm your host, Naomi Wagner, and we'll see you next time.